Hey, everybody, it's me, Prince Devin, one half of the podcast. Just before we get into the festivities, you know, joke about doing silly elf voices and offer you DMing philosophies and insights, I just wanted to get ahead of the proceedings to say, content warning, this episode comes with a heavier dose of a discussion of suicide than you would think, and if that is something you are not in a place to handle or don't seem sounds very fun, feel free to skip this episode, we won't take it personally, your overall mental health is more important than my silly dumb show. And if you can listen to it, uh, please enjoy it. It's the Cap to the Pathfinder series that I think has been pretty gosh darn fun. Thanks for listening. Love you, thank you, bye. There's a piece of DMing advice you gave me, and I don't even think it was advice at the time. It was just sort of a thing you said, but it's truly stuck with me to this day. But it was when you said your players are always going to give you something in the backstory that's really obvious that they want you to play with. And it's not about just doing it. It's about doing it in a way that they don't expect. The way that that manifested for me at the time I was talking to you about it is like you end up with like a player will incorporate like oh they have a long lost sibling in their backstory and it's like okay you want me to bring back the sibling as like a villain or you want me to uh, bring them back as like a like a something to pursue um uh and 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 what i like to do when i'm like gming a thing and i get like character backstories from more than one player is i will look at like another player's backstory and they'll drop like some obvious thing um and they'll like you know that player will have like a a a long lost parent or something and you'll go okay those are the same person um and you two are secretly related the whole time and that's a way you can like make two players like backstories make the things that they give you answer each other which handily ties them together it gives them things that they can do with each other and it also um, almost always gives you like a like an interesting angle to work with your to work with your information on because you know you just see oh they've got a missing brother and like devoid of context that's like okay um, I'm gonna make them a villain or I'm gonna use them as a a, a damsel um, but you know if you if you combine them with another piece of information that someone else has given you then that's gonna generate a, a more unique and less predictable uh, uh, dynamics. And that conversation was a snippet of what this whole episode is going to be, because hello everyone and welcome to original podcast Do Not Steal. Amber, what is the podcast? So normally this podcast is a podcast where every week Devin and I take your favorite uh, uh, and or least favorite intellectual properties um, uh, and we make an original character in that space as a way of talking about what makes that franchise interesting. Um, uh, today's episode is not going to quite fit in with that formula. We've done two episodes this season already talking about the Pathfinder role-playing game and creating an adventuring party of characters in Pathfinder because it's, you know, so much fun to make, uh, uh, tabletop role-playing game characters. And that's basically just what the, what the podcast is already. So we just did six of those. Um, and now we are doing this special third cap-off episode, um, in which I think we just, I think we're just giving people... A role-playing game advice for 45 minutes is that what we're doing here is that yeah so how i've conceptualized this episode is you know the talky bit before we get into air quotes the character creation of it all is just like uh, you know our approach to dming giving you guys some advice uh, i'm definitely gonna have a mini rant about what i would define as bad dming because it's something i i know i want to talk about but yeah i imagine the preamble is talking about that but what i imagine like the where you would fill the character creation space is taking the characters we made and then pretending that those are our players at the table and what we would do with sort of the prompts and arcs like how we would dm if these were the backstories we were given i think that's that's how i conceptualize this episode so that makes sense for me um how much how much backstory do we give here (laughs) (laughs) i think we can go uh, broad, just sort of give the characters and give their stuff. I remember them all super well. If you want me to cover I it, or we could go back spent and a lot forth. of time over the past couple of months thinking about these characters constantly, just based on who you are as a person. Yeah, <laughs> you you get it. You, you you you. We've had this podcast for two years, and we've been friends for way longer. You know me. That makes me kind of want you to you to give the broad like who are these people overview. 
Gotcha, gotcha. So if you haven't listened, please go back and listen. Both of the Pathfinder episodes are absolute uh, favorites, for, at least from my end. I love them to death. But we've got Malawi Tao, who is my shark man, who is a, a grungy, disaffected barbarian trying to be better than he used to be. He is a widower, and the reason he wants to be better than he used to be is because he wants to form a relationship with his grandson, because he knows that his relationship with his actual son is sort of irrevocably damaged, but if he can prove to be better, his son will allow him to be in his grandson's life, and he's got all of his rage is internal and about himself. Then we've got Spoon, who is one of the most Amber Autumn TPRPG characters ever, with one of the most Amber Autumn TPRPG character names ever, because the reason that its name is Spoon is because Spoon used to mean something in the Forever Go year that this automaton existed and it's got this whole thing about having hang-ups about what society is supposed to look like and how nature is supposed to be and the arc is sort of broadly about realizing that there's an intermingling of these two things and they're not so dissimilar and that Spoon's place in them doesn't have to be like antagonistic he could they can just fit in there is our lovely princess Penelope who is a witch who we play I like love more. Her. I love her to I love <laughs> Ninety percent of her uh, silhouette is just big hair. She is a Pathfinder gnome, so like, there's this whole thing about Pathfinder gnomes wherein you have to discover a new thing sort of every day, or the graining takes you, and you sort of lose your magic and die. Her thing is she is a witch whose magic comes from a whisper onto the wind. This sort of uh, we'll get into what I think this is, but I've been calling it the beast that breathe uh, the beast that breathes below the tides, um, and she's going on this big like Sherlock Holmes investigation because like no one's taking her seriously even though she's the princess so she's off on a quest to find out what this is about then we came in in round two i have fabian sea sparrow who is a cleric who like the origin point of his faith was he was saved by a divine act of intervention from a suicide goddess so he doesn't know how to honor that and honor his god he just knows that he does have a definitivity but struggles with like putting it into practice there is I always want to say Olga, but it's Andrea. Andrea Old Forest, who is sort of like almost comic relief, but sort of naive and young and left the wizarding world to get some life experience and sort of butts heads with all of these characters who have lived longer lives and do have more world experience and sort of bumbles and grows at the same time. And then there is the one we came up together. There is a Ravencrest Stormlord, a.k.a. Lindsay Greenbottom who is the atypical, not atypical, but sort of archetypical, precocious young child. He's a goblin swashbuckler with a, a family estate that he can't read because he is a, a swashbuckling pirate who didn't get a standard education, who's looking for home like all of these characters, but in a far more literal sense. And they all sort, and he sort of ties the family together around in like a more emotional quest. And that's the broad strokes of who these characters are. Something that we did in the past that was so nice to feature us um, is that we gave all of these characters reasons to go on an adventure. Like if you're the GM and you get the set of characters, it's like, okay, session one, we're on the boat already and we're already sailing. I don't need to do like, a, I don't need to have our characters meet a mysterious hooded figure in the tavern to give them a quest. You know, they already have a reason to be on the boat together, to be traveling together. I just need to come up with something for them to be doing. And we can just start them like en media res. They're, they're going, they're already on their way over there. As long as I can come up with like one quest line that I don't like, and you know, like it's the old screenwriting tip of enter late and leave early. Any given scene you want to, um, for like economy of storytelling, you want to enter the scene as at the latest point that you can and leave the scene at the earliest point that you can, um, because you don't want to include anything that's not doing anything. Like obviously that only applies to a specific kind of storytelling that wants to be kicking up a pace, but um, you know I, I think it, it it's going to apply to most role playing groups that you're playing with. Like I think most players, if you if you're given this group are not going to need to have a big scene where you're like given a quest. I think you can pull one player aside and be like, Hey, um, you've received a lead on this specific thing. Um, and that's where you're all going at the beginning of the, of the campaign. Is that okay? And I think everybody in that group would probably find a reason to say yes to that. Yeah. We, we found a reason for all these characters to be on an adventure and we found a nautical theme to sort of like a nautical aesthetic to tie it in. There's just a lot ourselves as players have given us as dms <laughs> shout out to us shout out to us 
I might need to take a second to to walk around the room for a couple of minutes while I try to. Okay, so do you want to do that, or do you want to sort of give like broad discussions about DMing before we get into that? I, where would we even start for broad discussions? It's such a big topic. It is. Here's here's what I want to pick you at because. Very often in this podcast, I defer to your storytelling expertise. I don't have a fancier word for it. But, like, you know, of the two of us, I have a great appreciation for the arts. I make a, I make a art. I finish creative projects. You are the one friend who has... You directed a musical. You directed a play. You've you've successfully made like art <laughs> that is a consumable product. Most of the art I have made is uh, media critiques. So like I don't know. I just kind of want to pick your brain about like what do you think are your strengths as a DM because you've DM'd for me and I think you're really good at it. But I'd like to hear like from your mouth what do you think are your skills and weaknesses. I think that I'm really good at creating memorable and evocative NPCs. I think I'm really good at like, you walk into a town and there's a kobold sitting at the front. Um, and I come up with like two or three characteristics and instantly that kobold is super memorable. You'll keep her around in your brain for the rest of the campaign. Everybody falls in love with her the second they see her. I think, I think I'm, I'm good at that. I'm good at populating a world with, with characters who are memorable. I think I am, um, I think I'm pretty good at uh, the aesthetics of it. I think I'm pretty good at making um, like set pieces that look and sound interesting and, and you know, take place on a, a giant Kraken's corpse that is sinking into the swamp that takes place in like a cherry orchard as like a eldritch ritual is is sucking all of the color out into a giant beam in the sky. You know, this sort of like, oh, stuff that is cool TM. And I think that I am pretty good at, like, putting players in the way of of dramatizing their characters' feelings. What does that mean? Great question. So that looks like, um, like, the way I would do this in high school when I was, like, still sort of new at it um, is, is we would do this thing called campfire scenes. Um, where when, when when characters were traveling over long distances, um, I would just like force everybody to do um, these like little incidental scenes of their characters interacting in like minimal ways, like um, you know, you're you're like characters in that Star Wars RPG arguing about who clogged the toilet and who has to unclog the toilet, Perfect just like goofy moment. things like that. Like <laughs> it's a funny one, but often it does it does result in these like more serious moments. I think now that I am. A little bit more uh, developed at this sort of thing. I think that I would, I, I I'm a little bit more prompt forward at this point, and I think I would I would probably do a better job of like finding things for your characters to react to. But I think that I am pretty good at like creating opportunities for characters to slow down, express themselves, and like have a conversation with each other. Um, and I, I think I'm pretty good at treating the game like it's a, uh, I don't know, like treating the game as if it's a communicative collaborative experience. Like, like this one is going to seem pretty obvious to anybody who's like working on the same level of RPGs as I am. But I think that for like a lot of people who just like play Pathfinder in the world, I think that by the standards of what most people are playing with, I do a really exceptionally good job of like understanding that my players are people and talking to them about what they want out of the game. And um, yeah, I think like of like constructing plots, the way that I tend to GM things. Because um, the we way that I tend to, yeah. both come at it from like the same perspective of like the best campaigns are one wherein story is a collaborative process between players and dms you want players driving the story because you want characters making active decisions that impact the world in some ways a dm should be reactive right yeah i think i think this actually ties into the probably the thing i was going to bring up as my, my biggest weakness is that i sort of struggle to um, like work with players who aren't playing the game in the way that I like am used to and in the way that I expect. I like I do a really good job. Like I think one of the reasons that Star Wars game was so effective for me is you have all of these characters who are really these players who are really bought into the game and who are not treating it as like an XP farm. Like even 
even the players at the table who like were much more on the like mechanics i want to steal things and kill things end of the spectrum were still like putting in the work to do nominal character arcs which is not a thing that like everybody does and i think that it is a really important skill as a gm to be able to accommodate players of different player styles and it's not one that i'm especially good at i really need my players to be really excited about like taking initiative in their storytelling and if they aren't able to do that then i have a much harder time keeping up with that play style see this is why i knew asking this question would lead us to a discussion because there are several points there i want to hit on um i want to start with the first one about making npcs because you're you are good at making an npc who is immediately memorable and i feel like that's somewhere i'm very bad at and some of that is purpose another part of that is at some point npcs all sort of devolve into the same like sarcastic voice i give them but part of the purpose i do it in is because from for my perspective as a player i think the most like dynamic and defined and multi-layered relationship should be player to player so to highlight that to make every player brighter i tend to mute my npcs just like a, I, I turn them down so that the players are up just by comparison yeah i i, I think that that could work in a world uh, in, a, in a in a game i just <laughs> i just love making npcs so much i just have like such a fun time i my my secret for you to to making them here's my for everybody listening here's my one second hack to make an npc that your character that your players will all love um and you can't do this for every character, but it is really reliable. Um, make them dumb. If you make them dumb and like obviously dumb, your players will fucking love them. Or will like if you're trying to make them the villain, um, uh, making them dumb in the right way, your players will fucking hate them. They all have really strong reactions to your characters being bad at things, and 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 there are a lot of different ways that you can have a character be dumb. Um, you can have a character who, like, you know, is doing the Drax thing where they obviously are just, like, misinterpreting basic things everyone says, and you can mine that for so much comedy. There's so much comedy to be mined from, like, someone saying we're undercover and then having your NPC go, um, uh, there's no cover over us. Haha, <laughs> instant laugh. Everybody at the table is like, oh, that's such a this character thing to say. Um, uh, and then you have, if you have, like, another character, um, who is, like, um, like Machiavellian genius um, who absolutely like falls over their words as soon as they have to make a speech to the players or who thinks of everything except for the most single most obvious thing and that has like the the dual benefit of a making your character really memorable and giving them a defining character trait but also b it's really important for the narrative I think that like one of the most important things you can do when you're making a character for your players to interact with is giving is like knowing what their faults are villains are always more interesting for their faults for their weaknesses than they are for their strengths making a villain who's just like the most all-powerful badass coolest guy ever um is not interesting it's just not um but making a guy who is almost the world's coolest most badass guy ever except for these like few things is always going to be more memorable it's always going to stick out in your players minds yeah, that ties into I'm about to be DMing a thing that is pa pa <laughs> palace intrigue at Castle Dracula. And one thing I did with, because like like I said earlier, I make NPCs who are muted. But if you're doing palace intrigue, all of your NPCs need to have things going on. They need to have wants and desires and person. They need to be brighter than I tend to make them. And what I demanded out of all of my players is you all have to come up with a secret your character is harboring that would in some way make them vulnerable to the court. And in so did I also make one for each of my NPCs. And yeah. Oh, I love that. Oh, it's so good. Yeah, just giving characters foibles makes them better. Giving NPCs foibles makes them better. I love that as an example of like a you as a GM can ask your players for things because like the traditional GM relationship is that the player is like word of God, there is no GM influence over their specific character and vice versa for the world. And I think that like two of the most useful things you can do as a GM, one um, is coming up with plot twists and then like giving them to your players. If we like go back to that Star Wars game, 
you came up with like a like an evil arch nemesis character right who you were like we defeated this character but i am obviously looking for you to bring them back and um noah was playing a droid and so i was like okay um the evil character is installed in the droids like backup hardware and is gonna resurface later which a great example of that thing that we were talking about earlier where that's like more interesting than i ever would have come up with on like by itself just there is a villain character um and so I went up to Noah and I was like, hey, your character's been having dreams. That's not like a thing that droids do. Droids don't dream, but your character's been having dreams. Is that okay? Because that's like planting the seeds for it. And Noah was just like, yeah, that sounds great. I would love to adopt. Like it wasn't like a previous like part of the character that he had come up with. Um, but he just like adopted that because it's an interesting thing that you're giving them. And they understand that you have a plan for it later. And I also had another thing that I was about to talk about here that I now don't remember what I was saying. I got sidetracked. <laughs> that brought something out in me that I I I, I would have kicked myself if I forgot it about. But yeah, uh, you just talking about like conversations between players and DMs reminded me of like there's a truth I hold that like I love it when the DM has like the notebook full of war, lore lore for their world. I think it's so cool. I love people flexing creatively. That's this whole fucking podcast. But I do believe fully as a player and as a DM that the lore. Like, the part of the world the players will most be invested in is the part they have, like, a direct influence on. And I don't even mean that in a backstory sense. Going back to the Star Wars campaign, I came up with a thing called the Phoenix Trials, like a bit of Mandalorian lore I fully invented out of whole cloth. That's not the thing I think about the most is infecting the world. What I think about the most from those days is in the Shadowrun campaign you DM'd, there was a bit where we had a corpo informant and as a lark, when he was talking to the secretary, he like said his heart got faster or something. We knew he had a crush. And my character was like, hit on her. Do it. Do it. I dare you. I did do it, pussy. And he did it. And come end of campaign, the season finale, that character who said do it, pussy, hit on her, was dead. I was playing someone different. And I kick in like the closet and you described that like snitch npc making out with the secretary hit on and i as a player like jumped up and down so just like letting like giving when your players make a decision like they do something it's so important to bring it up later and let them know that the decision they make matter that they are in fact affecting and changing the world actively it's so rewarding for your players i love that story i forgot that <laughs> Yeah, no, I hey, remember that. Remember it to this day, man. To this day, I have brought up that advice to several friends I have DMing right now. I'm like, no, no, no. Trust me, man. If <laughs> the part your players will care the most about is the part they directly affected, that's good advice. I should steal that. You should. <laughs> I'm <laughs> I'm gonna steal the like mix and matching backstories when I get the backstories for the. I'm calling it a, a court of blood and betrayal, so I don't have to keep saying palace intrigue at Castle Dracula. But yeah, <laughs> I love um, like, like asking your players for things. Like I love like the idea of you as a GM saying, "Come up with one thing that your character would be weak for," because like. Players love to have interesting characters, and they love to have characters with complications and foibles, and, like, D&D is not very good at providing those for you. Like, they'll say, like, they'll give you a background or whatever, but as players, I think that people are really thirsty for prompts, and giving people a prompt, like, come up with something that you'd be weak for, that, you, that would be a weakness for you in court if it came out, is a wonderful way of prompting the players with things, and I... I think that one of the most valuable sentences as a GM, um, I had, I, I, I heard one person say this in like a play test I was doing for Thirsty Sword Lesbians one time, which is an RPG. I asked the GM, April, I, I, asked, I asked her this question. I don't even remember what it was, but I so clearly remember her response, which was, that's a great question that I would love to hear you answer. And I think that's one of the best sentences for any GM to hold on to. I use that one all the time these days, um, is that when players... Um, have something that they think is interesting in the world that they're they're zoning in on, um, almost always that's for a reason. If the players say something like, oh, what does the ship look like? Um, and you don't, like, have anything immediately interesting ready, um, like, totally, if something comes to mind, go for it. Like you, Like, you don't need to say, 
oh, you answer that question to every single question, but I think players find it so rewarding when every once in a while you find something that's that's that has interesting potential, you latch onto something that you, you're like noticing the player take an interest in, um, and you give them a little bit of creative control over it. You say like, well, what do you what do you think would be interesting? I think used sparingly, it's a really, really, really powerful tool. I love that so much. Yeah, I, yeah, no, no notes. That's great. I love that. But speaking of powerful tools, I want to talk about one of my go-to tricks because I think I'm going to go like an opposite direction of like you're talking about giving the players like freedom. I get asked because I think I'm really good at players who are a little newer to the role play aspect. I really, I, I like it when my players aren't as comfortable because I think I'm good at like sort of coaching you into it. My go-to trick, here's just a free trick for everyone. But like as a DM, you wrote the fucking three paragraphs description, right? You have a, a point of the session that you have pre-prepared and you just have ready. After you do that, just pause and ask the players what their character is thinking after you've given them the big description because so much of like getting into role playing is just like thinking about characters encompass like being active in the world right and if you're not like a theater kid like all of my friends are that's not a skill set you've ever developed so just like giving them the space to think about what their character would be thinking in this moment helps players so much one of the things that i think is one of the most common mistakes that new players make that i notice um is that people will come up with a really elaborate like backstory. They'll come up with the thing their character is and what their character is thinking at all times. Um, and then they won't say any of it. They won't bring any of it into the story. And anything that doesn't come into the fiction um, doesn't count. If your other players don't get to see it, um, then, then it's not serving the story. I think that like, don't save anything for later. I think that that's like a, a thing that I believe really strongly in RPGs is that if you have like a bunch of cool character moments that you want out of your character, that's great. And then do them all in the first session because whatever comes after that is going to be more interesting than whatever you like came up with, like without any context of what the other characters at the table will be doing or without any of the input of the GM or anything like that. And so I think that as a GM, yeah, one of your big responsibilities is to make sure that any like emotions that character is having, any connections that they're bringing up, have a chance to be displayed in the fiction. And obviously, like a lot of that goes on the player. Sometimes a player will just like refuse to um, bring up their character backstory. They will just, you know, they'll say, "Oh, my character looks deeply," and then that'll be they they just like won't take any of the opportunities you give them. But as a GM, it is really really important to be able to make sure that you're that you're presenting opportunities for the characters to act on the things that are in their backstory, to act on the things their characters are feeling, because it, it doesn't count if it's not in the fiction. If the other players don't see it, then it then it didn't happen. Yeah, my big thing on, because I've I've been very guilty of uh, holding off on the big character moment, but the thing I've, I've come that makes it easier for me is if you thought of one big character moment that's really cool, I promise you, you'll be able to think of another one. You're not going to run out. What I think one of the biggest job this what what I end all my session zeros with the saying is I go if you give yourself permission to care I promise to give you a reason to and how I view my job when I'm DMing is like when you write a character backstory right that's like to give yourself a sense of personality and like lived experience. And eventually the lived experience comes in just like the game we have played, but like you've presented me with a character, you want an archetype. There's a story you want to tell. My job is to provide you with opportunities for change. And maybe you won't change sometimes. Like it's just about presenting an opportunity to change. Does the character take it? Do they not? What does that say about them? Batman stories are often about how Bruce doesn't change and that says something about him so as long as i provide you the opportunity and i will give you as many as i need until i'm until i or you feel satisfied with it but like i just i don't know i just i love just doing thing because like you can even like sort of force an arc on a player that's something i do an awful lot like <laughs> if you provide me a nothing backstory i'm gonna fill it out with whatever i want i did that with batman in the dc campaign but the example i'm gonna go to is in the dc campaign there was this moment 
I did with Amber uh, because I'm also very guilty of doing like one off. My my go to trick is saying, hey, could you meet me in another room? It's so powerful. I'll get into it in a second. But there was a moment where because Amber's character, uh, Crypt Keeper, his power came from Anubis and Anubis showed up and he shot out like Amber's Golden Age costume and the Courage costume and was like, think about when you are happiest, pick that costume and go for it. Uh, and Amber said, I see the path you're laying out before me. What if I incorporated bits from both costumes? And that's great. So you can like provide them the binary and your player thing then pick up on the thing they actually want. And it'll probably be even better. I think tabletop role playing games are cool. Yeah, they're great. <laughs> they're so good. So with that in mind, um, uh, could I do, do two more think, slight yeah, rants yeah, before we get into go. it? Okay, cool. Um, I just want to talk about my philosophy for like setting up encounters. Uh, that you 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 sprung up to like saying when you were like the, the uh, corpse of a crack and like sinking into a swamp. I think like in setting up an encounter, never go for static. It's not just a room full of things to be killed. It is an environment with like. Oh my god! It has to be a race every time. Yes. If there's no time pressure, it's boring. Yes, yes. There needs to be just multiple things going on, not just like a group of cobalts. There's a cobalt wizard who, in ten turns, is gonna rain pain on the group. And there's also like archers on the highway. Just if there are like multiple things going on that players have to solve, it is more engaging. And I think if you're like really setting up good encounters, it is your job to read the sheet and understand what like strengths you have. If you're a ranger with like you can't deal big damage in one hit but you can deal that damage out make sure it's a room full of people so that they can so that your player has a chance to feel good but also recognize the strengths they don't their weaknesses and punish them hard to keep them engaged i think that makes for some of the best encounters i cannot stop making encounters in settings that are flooding um or collapsing i really love the trick of like the location where the players start um, like on, on turn one, that square is fine. And on turn two, um, I like fill in one square forward with lava. And then on turn three, I fill in the next two squares forward with lava. And then on turn four, I fill in the next three squares forward with lava. Um, and it like accelerates past them. And then suddenly it's like, oh my God, like there's a ticking time pressure. The battlefield is changing. We have to keep moving. I love making, making environments that are rapidly changing. Yes, and yes, active environments for encounters are so good. I had a point. I forgot it, but I do remember my other point. I want to talk about um, what I would define as bad DMing real quick because it's a rant I've had in my brain for a while. But shout out uh, Persephone Valentine. And Amber, you're you're trans and make TTRPGs, and you keep telling me that those groups are closed. Uh, get get about me. <laughs> get, get, get Persephone Valentine to play your tabletop RPG and then get her on the podcast. Honestly, uh, just knowing how... <laughs> The sphere of trans RPG people and like how that community is, um, it totally I could do it. I bet do I could it. do it. Do it, I dare you. I do I'm gonna, I I'm, gonna I'm gonna look her up right now. <laughs> but shout out to Like her. a like she... a forty percent chance that she's fucked one of my exes. <laughs> but she had a great line where it's like being a DM is knowing when an idea is a good thing for a novel and when one is good for a campaign. And opposite of a shout-out, Anthony Birch, I think, like, season two of Dungeon Daddies is, for me, such a clear-in-my-mind, concise example of bad DMing. And, of course, with all the caveats of, like... I say this all the time, but the only way to play the game wrong is to play it in a way that does not incentivize fun for the whole table. So if the whole table of Dungeons and Daddies is having fun, Anthony Birch is doing a good job. But for my purview, I think it's bad because, like, if you come in more excited about your lore and your NPCs and not what the players brought you, I would call that bad DMing. And like so much of that season, it just feels like the thing Anthony is excited about is the PCs he made last season, exploring like their emotional arcs throughout this season. But the thing I really go to is there is this moment where Taylor Swift, who is a ranger, was trying to do like a thing. And the player 
Jimmy Wong kept, or Freddy, Freddy Wong kept asking, can I like use a different skill check to do this thing? And Anthony kept saying no, which is fine. Sometimes being a DM is being a hard ass and paying attention to the rules. But like they go through this like whole back and forth. And at some point, uh, Birch just goes, it's not my fault. You made a character who sucks. And I go, ah, it kind of, it kind of is though, because like Taylor Swift as was so from the bottom up designed for like urban exploration. He's a fucking like mall catonic kid, like survivalist kid. And like Lincoln Lee Wilson is a homeschool kid going to normal public school for the first time who has soccer dreams and scary as a goth punk seeker of darkness. And normal is this mascot kid. All of these characters were designed for like Buffy high school, paranatural adventures. And now they're on like a high fantasy thing. It's just like, the players brought you things they were excited about. You got to go with that, man. You can't be presented with a ranger designed for urban exploration and never let them urban explore. It's just like you, your players brought you a thing and you need to be excited about what your players brought you. But that was my rant and I didn't remember the other thing. So do you want to talk about our what we do with uh, our cast, how we DM this? Um, just starting the way that I, the way that I would start, um, I would start by looking at, okay, what are we, what are the plot hooks that we've been given so far? And then how do we make those be the same plot hook? So, um, a couple of the plot hooks that we've been given so far are, for example, um, a, a, the deed to a piece of property that's really valuable, a, a deific influence saving a person for reasons unclear. Persephone listening to the Persephone hearing the voice from the beast that breathes below the tide. So I have several ideas because I'm me and I've thought about these characters for a while. Would you just like to hear some of my ideas and then incorporate them to sure, how you would it. more do it? Okay, cool. So so much of DMing is just ripping off whatever thing you happen to be listening to at the time. And so I didn't have like a big idea for the beast that breathes below the tides and then like a fun name and like at the end of every session i'd describe like this enormous uh subterranean vault and like after you did a quest one of the chains would proc off so like there's an artificial feeling of progression like a thing's gonna happen eventually and that makes you excited for the next session right but the idea i was like i don't want it to be a cthulhu that's boring i think i just want it I want it to be like something they're not expecting. And the idea I came up with because someone was like, have you heard of that whale who speaks in a different frequency from all the other whales? And I was like, dear God, that's sad. Oh, that's it. This thing that is breathing below the tides. It's not an animal that is native to water. It's like speech does not translate to everything that is around it immediately, but somehow it has connected to Persephone, and that's why she, I mean Penelope, and that's why she can hear it. And for uh, Lindsay Greenbottom, this is exactly something I do, because the bit we came up with was that Lindsay can't read it, right? It's illiterate. Uh, Penelope can, and what I do is, like, if you get a high enough insight check... Uh, she'd read it, she'd know that it's the Greenbottom estate, and because she is a princess and she is rehearsed, I imagine she would be trained in, uh, like, you know, a history check. And so the knowledge I would give that, when I when I do the thing where I go, oh, meet me, <laughs> meet me in the other room being powerful. It's so powerful. Every time you say, hey, could you meet me in the other room? Even if it's, like, bullshit, just, like, the idea that there's knowledge not everyone at the table is getting it just sparks interest so much. I love doing it. It's my favorite trick and I abuse it all the time. But the meet me in the other room information I would give to Penelope is that she knows that the green bottoms are one of the few like goblins of influence. Like they were able to climb up a higher status, but they all got killed. Like he's going to a ghost house. Like it's valuable, but it's going to be empty. And now she's like, and she's like 12 and she doesn't know how to handle this information with tact or if Lindsay knows this and like this is a secret she would now then hide and like when would that come out what other players would she tell that thing about too I'm trying to get a a, a clear sense of what you meant by the thing that breathes under the tides it's specifically not a Cthulhu it's I imagine like a big turtle um just in my brain. But the, the main thing is like that whale whose frequency like can't talk to other whales, whatever. Like I imagine that same like echo thing and its frequency just doesn't hit anything 
under the sea, but for some reason it hits Penelope. That's why she can hear it talk. Did the shark give us any plot hooks? No, the connective tissue there, I think I made retroactive, it's not on pod, was um, he's been paid by Persephone's parents to be a bodyguard, because that's just like a skill set he would have, and he has a reputation in their kingdom, and so they just kind of paid him to do it. That's like his reason for being here. He has like a son or something. Yeah, he's got a... He's got a. Son. He's trying to be a better man to have a son with his grandson because his relationship with his son is irrevocably fucked, um, and that stems from the fact that like his life as a underworld slum lord like got his wife killed. I do want to clarify. I didn't. I don't. I don't like super. I don't. I don't like. I don't like throw her straight in the refrigerator. Like she was also like she was an equal in the in the crime stuff. They were like a crime duo. It just caught up with her in a way where she died. And that was when, like, but the son now blames the dad type thing. Not like, oh, I did bad things and then they hurt my family to hurt me. She was also, like, a bad, they were equally bad together. I just wanted, I didn't fully fridge her. She's still dead, but it's not, like, the worst fridging. What is this voice? Uh, it's, um, I've been listening, it's Matt Lieb. This is my Matt Lieb impression. That, that's what that is. That's why I say, pacey like that now. Thanks, I hate it. <laughs> yeah. Here's a fun fact. Um, it, it, you know, saying pussy like that, not not sexy, um, doesn't help when having phone sex. Oh, my God. <laughs> Here's the thing. Do I didn't, you? No. I, God. I, no, it, like, I didn't, like, full pussy, but, like, a little bit, and, like, Seven. I like I felt it, and, like, I, I, I tried to push it down. Like, they didn't notice, but I noticed that I kind of said it's stupid. Oh. Uh, that's so funny. Okay, here's a here's a bit of connective tissue. Um, Spoon's whole thing is he's like a millennia old, right? What if the beast that bleeds breeds below the tides is like from the age Spoon is from, right? That's some connective tissue between Spoon yeah. and Princess Penelope. I I was I was thinking that here's okay here's a couple of things that are that are churning around in my brain space. Yeah, Spoon obviously has some kind of a relationship with this whale. I don't know what it is yet. We'll figure that out as we talk through the rest of it. Um, it seems like the whale probably has some sort of a relationship with Fabian. Because Fabian, like, was supposed to die tragically at sea. And then was saved for unclear reasons by a deity. And I wonder if perhaps, like, the manner that he was saved in was via the whale or perhaps if the reason that he was saved is because his his death and shipwreck would endanger the whale in some way like you have a like a deific connection in there and maybe you can connect that somehow to um Lindsay and penelope both have the connection via via being like very wealthy and being very like people of nobility and you could possibly connect them to the church in some way um, to the church that, like, would support the kind of, the death of Fabian. I wonder if, like a, like a, like a good inciting incident, um, like a good first act thing you could do would be to have the church call for Fabian's death because it seems like he was supposed to die and the church doctrine doesn't actually believe that he would have been saved by the deity and they think that something else must have happened that he was fated to die and that he should therefore die and so the church is on board with trying to kill fabian possibly even um uh you know Lindsay and penelope's family or like people who they know and that gets them involved um and then you can incorporate like people who are more like small level priests and priestesses and like clergy folk of that god and they can have some kind of like a strong connection with the creature that the creature that that sings below the waves um and you know they they have a creature that they have some sort of a relationship with and you know you don't find out until later that it is the same creature who is singing to penelope um, I don't know, like, these are, these are, 
These are strings I'm imagining drawing between people. And you wouldn't see those when the campaign begins, right? It would only be like through play that those things would, would come out and you would eventually come to like see all these ways that these characters' conflicts are interrelated with one another. I think it's neat that when we like made the party, we found the ways in which their goals were the same, right? They were all sort of looking for home. And now that we're DMing it, we found a way to like intermingle the conflict they are all facing. Do we want to look at the the prompts and see if there's one that maybe applies to the the creature that sings below the waves? Sure. I would also like to ask, do you have any connective tissue with Andrea Old Forest? She feels a little not here. Yeah, right Andrea's now. the rough one. She's she's difficult. Cause she doesn't really have that many plot hooks automatically attached to her. So okay, she's like uh from what I remember, she's an elemental witch who does like a water magic. Maybe what if what if instead of like because the the divine intervention like there's a specific pathfinder god who's like a goddess of suicide that fabian worships so maybe the beast that gives penelope her magic also is in some ways related to olga's magic right like maybe this beast is so ancient it's sort of like an element of water in some way like one of the first beings that existed in this world and so like from it sprouts the magic that is like that inspired the text that olga is reading right now i keep calling her olga andrea okay let me give you so the beast that whispers the reason the beast that whispers is different is because it has we'll say like one foot out of the mortal world. The beast that whispers is like the one whale to have attempted suicide, the one whale to have, um, uh, and, and this, this deity whose name I don't remember. Um, and we should probably look it up, but she saves it because it's like the most mighty creature to ever have like chosen that fate for itself. And that makes it an extremely powerful, um, that makes it an extremely powerful emissary for her. Um, and so it doesn't like, it's not quite alive, but it's not quite dead. It's living somewhere in like the twilight of between worlds. Um, and that's why the resonance is different. Um, and you know, maybe then you can connect uh, Penelope to um, like half unlife in some way. You can find out that she's like half undead or something. Um, but then that means that that creature has a like, it's lived for a millennia, gradually accruing the like, um, the the like psychic power of magic deaths or of, of tragic deaths through the world. Any like any any stories that end in tragedy somehow they like make their way spiritually to the beast that whispers. That makes it. That's a why it's such a icon to be worshipped by, like all of these all these clergy folk of the deity, but also it means that it has an enormous amount of magical power. Yeah, it's like a font of this sort of tragic magic energy. And I think that whatever whatever elemental magic that Andrea is using um, is a conduit to this beast. And, you know, again, that's not a thing that's clear right away, um, but is a thing that, that comes out eventually is that this beast, um, which is like this figure of tragedy, is the source of all of Andrea's powers. Ooh, yeah, I like that. Also, the goddess is Nadiri, N-A-D-E-R-I. Yeah, I yeah, it does it does a lot to intermingle players' struggles, right? Because sometimes, because not, you know, most of the time, your players do sort of fall in line because we all understand that's a part of the game. But like, it just it helps so much when they think they all are chasing separate, disparate goals, but really they're chasing the same goal and then you get to have the moments of shock and players love to be shocked and you love to shock players as a dm it seems like prompt wise we need to go with either a fairy in a bottle or a demon's eye right those are very difficult ones to prompt um to to answer in these but this is a great setting for either of them yeah these are both super fantasy shit 
And we should we should we should pick the super fantasy shit for the high fantasy setting. I am very intrigued by a demon's eye. I don't have an immediate idea, but it intrigues. You know, I'm I guess I'm intrigued by both. I'm gonna think on this one before I just talk. Well, let me let me pitch you on the first thing that I think of when I think of the demon's eye here is so this this whale um, that is halfway to death has like one demon's eye and one celestial eye aether eye uh, the angel one the one that's an angel i don't remember what it is in pathfinder lore but um it has one eye that's a demon's eye and one eye that's an angel's eye basically um because it has it has it has visions into the afterlife it has visions into like what it is in the world beyond maybe it can't even see in its real world anymore it like moves around by sound in the way the whales do but like it's sound that's unheard and so um that sort of gives it something to report on as well if you if you end up in a place later in the campaign where the characters are communicating then you can raise the stakes by saying that something is going wrong in hell or heaven or wherever it is that the demon I and the angel I are 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 looking into. Um. Mm. I think I like this conceptually a little more than the idea you've given me. I like the idea of the whale having the devil eye because it has one foot in the grave already. Hmm, what can I do to make this more connected to like this group of people who are trying to find family and so is the wh okay what what if the whale is also looking for its family and they are in hell is that any i don't know that that's way like better that. yeah okay 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 well, no i really like that yeah let's roll with this let's roll with this can I, because because I've I've had an idea for Fabian's ending. Can I pitch that at you now with the new context yeah. of we sort of know? So how I imagine, and I'm just gonna start. <laughs> this is this is gonna get a little heavy, guys. So I just want to start by saying this is a uh, this is very much my own personal values. I'm someone who's pro euthanasia. I think uh, we should allow people to die with grace if that is a thing so they choose and so with that in mind of my own personal beliefs i think fabian's story is one that sort of reinforces that because if you are conscripted to a goddess about suicide and you struggle to sort of know how to like fulfill that and i imagine his opening chapter is like uh, simply gu guiding a man like through a painless suicide like letting him die in grace because this man doesn't have anything and like I imagine lots of conversations at the bar with Malawi Tao where like every time you take a shot you have to tell more about yourself and that's sort of the relationship they have and I think within his struggles of knowing how to praise his goddess and knowing that there's all these sort of different conflicting routes about it I think his story ends with him giving his life like actively choosing to die and that's always how i pictured it and now i think he gives his life in a way that would somehow through magical means allow that whale to be with his fam with its family i think that's a pretty good ending for a tv show i'm nervous about that like level of prescriptivism in the ending if you're GMing something like the approach that I like to do I like to sort of know the third act that I'm aiming for um I like or like I like to know what the beginning of the third act that I am aiming for looks like when I start a campaign when I start a campaign I know where we start I know the information and therefore probably some of the twists that are going to happen and I know more or less where I want the third act to begin. I don't like planning the rest of the third act because I think by that point, you really want the players to have taken it in their own direction and you really want to be open to seeing what they do with it. So I don't necessarily want to like prescribe an ending that happens to Fabian, but I, I do like the idea of putting Fabian in a position. He is responsible now for this creature who like original suicide um and like just seeing what fabian as a character and what the player chooses to do with that situation 
yeah, it's... I'm going to say two things. It's that moment in Genesee 2 where I was very excited when Seraphim and Loki brought back. And I was like, do you want to have a plan for this? And you and character were like, let's give it to the younger generation. And also back to that thing, Persephone, hey, Persephone Valentine, thank you for listening. But like you said, knowing your ideas are a novel and when they're a tabletop thing. So thank you, Amber, for remembering that we're doing a tabletop right now. We're not writing a novel. Yeah. I don't know what the end goal of this of this kind of episode is. I don't know when we know that... I mean, we've been going for an hour now, so... Like, presumably there's not that much left, but it, is there something left? I don't know. Like I said earlier, it's like providing players opportunities. It is not prescribing an ending, so knowing when to feel satisfying is very odd. I think then what we do here is what I just did with Fabian, where we sort of come up with what we, like, think the provided ending would be, um, for, like, what, what, like, what we, like, the moment we'd give the player to react to, sort of, for their arc, I think. Does that, does that make sense? Yes, okay. And we can come up with one real quick for each of those characters. I mean, with Andrea, like, to me, it's very obviously you've met the source of your magic. How do you respond? But that's almost like too obvious and a little too broad to feel satisfying. I think it's the opposite of don't meet your heroes. So like, here's your twist. But like Andrea's thing is kind of being a klutz and wanting to be taken seriously and like leaving the wizarding school because wizarding school wasn't the way that she could operate and like learn to learn and she thought life experience would be better and then she found another group of people who do respect her but all have sort of like tenure on her and she's like she kind of wants to be teaching already right like i, I want to be an adult um i think the source of her magic is like that moment for you where you talk about like the first time an adult treated you as a kid as an equal i think andrea gets that from the source of her magic and that's like a big moment where the player would hopefully give you something interesting is that better the cult of nimona or whatever the fuck her name is um and maybe the state as well whatever a mass of villains we've accrued over the over the course of the campaign um have discovered the MacGuffin artifact that we've been setting up this whole time and they've man maneuvered all of their pieces into place um, and now they are in a situation where things have turned and they have decided to kill the creature under the waves um, and your final act is this big battle sequence and um, some people are trying to like kill the creature and presumably your characters are trying to save the creature um, you get into this like final like the f like hopefully your final ish sequence has something to do with like the characters um, uh, engaging the creature in a discussion one last time as like the creature swims towards its own doom and it's a question of like if the creature is like sort of aware that this is a thing it's doing um, do your characters try to save it or not and if they do try to save it what do they say to it to try to prevent it from doing that and that ties into a lot of the themes that all of the characters have been building up to so far and it creates a very literal direct question for a lot of the players where like for andrea if this creature dies it's the source of all of her magic gone it's it's like this creature is supporting her and her life would be markedly different if the creature dies, but the creature is of course trying to die. And so it's like a question of, like that complicates the question somewhat. And, and, and it brings her, like her powers have been suspect this whole campaign. Like she finds out they're attached to this very tragic um, and, and not necessarily good figure. Um, and so this is sort of like a culmination of that theme. It culminates uh, Fabian's story, obviously, because it's his chance to um, either commit to or take back the thing that got him started on this whole mess. Um, uh, Penelope and uh, Lindsay both definitely have family members in this fight who they are either fighting against or in some way have some really, the, their families are in the battle or have people in the battle. So that makes it very, very complicated for them, and they get to 
express a dramatic final moment in that way. Um, Spoon, we presumably have some kind of a relationship with this creature. Uh, before the creature became like this this vessel of tragic death um and so spoon gets to like have this confrontation with a past and a way that the past has changed in a very direct way and you get to like emphasize the way in which the whisper under the waves is different than how spoon remembers but you also get to emphasize the way in which it's the same and you you see the choices spoon makes in there and you've you've given you you've probably given at this point the creature a lot of um, either similarities to our, our Shark Boy's kid, or um, maybe you even give Shark Boy's uh, uh, children a, and, and grandchildren, his family, a, a direct association. Maybe one, of, um, uh, maybe one of them has died tragically over the course of the campaign. You kill one of them during the course of the campaign in a tragic way, and so their tragic deaths um, uh, have, like, in some way become a part of this whale um and so um you get to see him have like a like a co final conflict with the whale in that way and all of these final conflicts are all wrapped up in the same battle and the same decision in the same conversation this is why i very often it adhere to your storytelling expertise because i was so fucking good dude <laughs> you fucking nailed it you fucking you fu thank you you fucking nailed you. it can I, I only have one add bit to add. Can I add it? Obviously, yeah. I think the MacGuffin that our villains have got is the whale's demon eye. I think the whale did like an Odin where like it has the, the tragedy of it is like the whale can't talk to anyone, right? It has no voice, but it has an all seeing eye. It has an the thing that can see everything but can't connect with any of it. Except for one person. Except for Princess Penelope. Just by an act of fate. Yeah, I'm. That's we... a pretty good campaign concept. Yeah, it's pretty good. I, yeah. Oh, oh, god. I fucking. I man. I can't wait to play around more with these characters in my in my mind palace, dude. And I can't wait to follow up Pathfinder when we do a season two where we find out how our characters become NPCs <laughs> in the next campaign. <laughs> Just play a Pathfinder campaign. You clearly want to. I mean, I would love to do, like, just a sort of bog-standard 1 to 20 fantasy thing. But, like, you know, I, you, I, I probably will. I'm probably, I'm probably, yeah, you know what, fuck it. Fuck it, I am. I'm gonna, I don't know if it's gonna be Pathfinder, but fuck it. I'm gonna get some people together, and I'm gonna do high fantasy, goddammit. Personally, I believe that Dungeons & Dragons 4th Edition and Pathfinder 2nd Edition are the two best D&Ds on the market. You know, they're all D&Ds, but I, th I think those are the two best of the D&Ds. Alright, now you guys know uh, games you should buy. Do we do one fun fact apiece? Because this is, is going to be called uh, How We Do Our Pathfinder. And do, do, so do we do one fun We don't have to do I Ship It. Uh, so, like, do we do one fun fact apiece now? Sure. Okay. Let's do one fun fact apiece. Oh, this isn't my fun fact, but this was a thing I wanted to bring up before we started recording. It's the beast that breathes below the tides. And I love that every time you've said it, it's been different because that would 100% be a running joke throughout the campaign that no two characters say it the same. And Princess Penelope, who is a little hoity, who is a little toity, is very adamant about it having the specific name. And it becomes like an easy way to rile her up. And I think it's so fun that you've like inadvertently brought that running joke just to the episode big you're big table so energy. good at taking me fucking things up and turning it into a compliment it's a really valuable skill that you have and i really do appreciate it <laughs> this is why we've been friends for so long the beast that breathes the blow um the blow. yeah <laughs> the beast that breathes uh, the blow it's it's like it's like one half one foot into death right and so mm -hmm. I think I think you have this like act two or maybe act three sequence um, when the characters go on a big quest that all takes place inside of the beast because it's a whale and you cannot go into the whale at some point during the course of the campaign. And of course the whale is like half dead. And so there's like an entire whale fall ecosystem inside of this whale that is still swinging, swimming around. And so you get to have this whole like dungeon crawl experience inside of a whale that is like alive, but decaying. 
Um, and you get to put a lot of cool, a lot of cool monsters and stuff in in that way. You you love a body horror. <laughs> what can I say? I'm transgender. I think this campaign starts on a boat in Meteores, and I think the denouement, the ending, it ends in a tavern with the characters who are alive come the end of it having a little reunion that's (laughs) you end in a tavern (laughs) that's so cute (laughs) i love that and that's god i feel fucking great about the pathfinder series dude i'm glad you should play pathfinder (laughs) i will one day eventually but I won't do it next week because we'll be too busy talking about not gemming the holograms. Amber, what are we going to be talking about next week? I'm not letting you motherfucking two cis boys get away with being the only people on this goddamn show to talk about Harry Potter when I am right here. <laughs> we doing a Harry Potter episode. Yes, we're doing a Harry Potter episode and we are doing better than James Gandolfini. Oh, I don't know if we can. James Gandolfini understood <laughs> the assignment, man. There's... Let's see. Let's see if we can rise to the occasion of doing better than James Gandolfini. Thank you all for listening. My name has been Amber Autumn, she, her. And I've been Prince Devin, he, him. Our theme music is by Kyle Alicia, whose work you can find at therealragnarok.bandcamp.com. Um, no, sorry, at hollowrib.bandcamp.com. Still not over... I, I really set myself in the routine there over several years. Um, uh, please feel free to drop us a like, drop us a comment, head by our Patreon, and head by our merch store, um, where we will be selling um, uh, krakens that are slowly sinking into the swamp. <laughs> going to be a lot on shipping and handling for that one. Good luck, fuckers. It's Love not you. Cheap, bye. But we're selling one. <laughs> bye. <laughs>